Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life's defining moments don't always feel that great when they are happening. In the moment, they can feel challenging, uncomfortable, difficult, impossible even. But with hindsight, they can take on a different shape. Each week, I ask my guests to share their biggest life learnings to date as we explore those difficult, swampy, infuriating times and how they shaped them, all from a comfortable distance that's afforded them the time to take the positive out of what might have seemed nothing but negative at the time. Because whether it's risks, excuses, obstacles, opportunities, both missed and taken, successes, regrets, curveballs, weaknesses, strengths, and perhaps the hardest lesson of all, being wrong, they are the reason they are the person they are today, the person sitting in front of me on this episode of The Emma Gunn Show. My guest today is Dr. Jim Down, a consultant in critical care and anaesthesia at University College London Hospitals. During the COVID-19 pandemic, he worked on the busy ICU ward at UCLH and documented his experience in the book Life Support, which chronicled what life was like for a doctor in the midst of a pandemic. Jim was born in Dundee and studied first at Bristol and then at Exeter before completing his higher training at UCH. A fan of comedy, Jim tried his hand at stand-up and was a consultant on the long-running TV series Holby City. But these are two perhaps surprising adjuncts to a career spent on the front line where split-second life-or-death decisions and emergency are the norm. His latest book, Life in the Balance, has been described as a remarkably honest memoir of a life spent pulling people back from death, with stories ranging from the fascinating to the terrifying by author Adam Kay. Jim is a keen runner and adores a jog on hamster teeth, and it's there that he is now an early morning regular at the Lido, which is which he said was something he tried in response to a period of poor mental health and never stopped. Dr. Jim Down, it is such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much. I can't believe you brought up stand-up comedy. <laughs> I'm sorry, you asked no, that, for it. <laughs> yeah, that was not a not an, a high point in my uh, in my career, if let's put it that. But you know what? Sometimes we need to experience those low points to appreciate the high points. My first question is: Lido or Lido? I say Lido, but I think the queue in the morning is about split 50-50, so <laughs> the people who go there don't know. <laughs> As I was saying it, I thought, oh no, I'm going to have said it the wrong way. Yeah, no, I definitely say Lido. Lido, good, excellent. Yeah. Um, you like a cold water swim, which we will be coming on to a little bit later. So you, when I think about you and I think about what your job is, it makes me feel like a terrible human being who is offering absolutely nothing to life, the world or society, <laughs> because you really are there. And if you weren't there, we would be in a sorry, sorry state, would we not? Uh, well, I, I mean, I, um, that's very kind of you to say <laughs> so. I mean, I, I, I think, uh, you know, we need, I, I'm going to sound, whatever I say to this can sound awful, isn't it? There's no easy way. I mean, I, I, I'm very much against the sort of exceptionalism of, of doctors. And, but then I'm quite pro the exceptionalism of nurses because I think they're sort of, they are a bit special. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's, it, um, we need everyone, don't we? I mean, that's, the, if you think about the pandemic, it was all the, all the workers were 
were key mm. and uh and and i i mean i you know i've been listening to your podcast and i i i think i think we never we need everything so i uh uh, yeah, I don't. I, I, I don't think. Uh, I don't think any. I don't think we can do without any part of it, really. That's uh, a very generous perspective. I would. I would say. I think more when I, even in the opening of the book, for example, there's a conversation. I think it's when you're a trainee doctor or a student doctor, and the words that are coming out of your mouth make absolutely no sense to me. But they are. The stakes are high, and the knowledge that you have is 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 just so vital and it just makes me realize that I operate in a completely different stratosphere where which is cushioned because you are face to face with really big decisions around life and death every day and I know I personally couldn't handle that but it's it's really interesting isn't it because it's what we're so I I still find them very stressful mm -hmm. I'm going to say that you know I'm an anxious person and um, much as I thought when I qualified it would become uh, I'd become more confident and I'd be that, you know, elder statesman who people came to and I could stroke my chin and go, yes, you should do that. Mm. That hasn't happened at all. And in fact, the older I get and the more I know, the more difficult I think it is that the decisions become grayer and grayer. Um, so I don't find it easy and I don't mind that. I mm -hmm. think it's probably quite good not to find it easy, you know, um, and to wrestle with it. But the other bit is that I think you're what you're trained in, it becomes second nature, doesn't it? So mm. one of the managers said to one of my colleagues the other day, um, so are you happy to tell someone they're going to die? And he said, well, you know, it's not, I don't like doing it, but I'm, yes, I can do it. I've done it a lot. And he said, okay, and are you happy to tell someone that they're fired? And they went, oh God, no, I wouldn't have a clue. <laughs> that would be awful. You know, and, and so I think it, you, you know, you, you, your world seems normal, doesn't it? Whatever it is, mm. I suppose. Um, that's not to say, that's not to say I don't get upset or stressed. I mean, I definitely do. <laughs> is it a calling? Um, that's very, uh, is it a calling? Well, so I can only tell you what happened to me. Mm. So I'm from a medical family and I was determined that I wasn't going to do it. And I went to, I thought I was going to work in TV and, you know, didn't really know what that was. But, I mean, I knew what TV was. I, know what, I thought I'd be a producer or an advertising account manager or something because mm. um, they all seemed cool and glamorous. And then uh, when I was about 17, I said to my dad, oh, maybe I should just spend a week in the hospital. Because when I was a kid, we used to, the only experience we had at the hospital was on Christmas Day. We had to go in with my dad, who then got dressed up as a fairy or a belly dancer or something, you know, very, it was the 70s, different times. <laughs> and uh, we'd get put in a room and then we'd have to sit watching him carve the turkey for all these poor people who were, you know, at death's door. And I just, it just, I hated it. But anyway, when I was 17, I went back um, and went round all the bits and I kept fainting because um, I couldn't believe, you know, I wasn't, I was quite squeamish, but something in me just thought, oh yeah, no, I, I could do this. Uh, it was really odd. And uh, is that a calling? I don't know. But it was, it just seemed like the right thing to do. Um, and that was, I mean, I didn't, I, I, at that stage, I thought I'd be a GP. Mm -hmm. And then I found that I, I didn't have the patience or the, uh, well, two things. One was the patience and one was the, um, there's a the thing GPs do that I think is really impressive is that they have to take a calculated risk every time someone comes in, you know, say, I think this will be fine, go away. And I couldn't bear that. I'd want to scan them all head to foot. Ah, okay. 
So you kind of want them. I want to. I want all the information. You and don't want have, an eight-minute session. I don't want an eight-minute session, and I don't want to go. This is ninety-nine point nine percent nothing. You know, if it's not better in two weeks, come back. I'd right. be thinking, what about that point one percent? Um, and they're brilliant. I mean, that's why mm-hmm. uh, good GPs, I think, are one of the most undervalued things. And, you know, they're so important at, at doing that, I think. Anyway, that's a, a transgression, a well, digression, you not mentioned, a transgression. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned risk there, which is where I want to, which is where I always start with the podcast. But before we go into that, I am actually going to ask you, are people in medicine just horribly undervalued and I say that on a day when I don't know the way that you walk to the studio but I walk past Guy's Hospital Mm, and there's a honk if you support nurses um I didn't have anything to honk that wouldn't have got me cautioned (laughs) but they were obviously they're trying to drum up support because at the moment we know that it isn't a great situation for for nurses, for GPs. The uh, the service is really horribly stretched mm. and underfunded, and it seems so cruel. Given that we know, as we even talked about a few minutes ago, that during the pandemic, who did we lean on? Those people who are now saying we can't we can't pay our bills. Yeah, I, I, so I I support the nurses um, wholeheartedly, and I will if if the junior doctors. Uh, choose to go out or support them too. I mean, I get that this isn't an easy, you know, we wouldn't want to be here, would we? Mm. we um, and I've got all sorts of, you know, feelings about the last 10 years. But mm. but I think uh, I think you're right. I think we've got a big shortage of nurses. Um, we now, you know, it, we've never known more how much we need them. Um, when, when the pandemic was on, you know, I didn't do whole shifts as a nurse, but I did do hours. And although I've been working with them for, 25 years just doing their job with them for a, you they, they they work incredibly hard and they they combine that skill with that compassion in a way that I think is amazing and I think the same is true for the junior doctors you know when I came out a long time ago it was um you know it was hard being a junior doctor is always going to be hard I think but we were reason you know we were paid okay and we had a good career path ahead of us and we all sort of got it. Now they come out with a hundred grand of debt. They're paid very poorly to begin with, um, and their training's difficult. And and loads of them are just leaving the country, which is so. I, I you know personally, I think we've got to sort this out. Mm. Um, and so I yeah, I just clapped them as I walked past. <laughs> you didn't honk. You I clapped. didn't have anything to honk either. <laughs> Um, okay, so I'm going to ask you, um, what? How would you describe your relationship with risk? Yeah, so I, I, when I first answered this, I, I mean, my natural thing is to say I'm not a risk taker. You know, I, like in the classic sense of the word, like of all the vices, gambling doesn't appeal to me at all. I, I just, mm-hmm. it's just stress as far as I'm concerned. Um, and I, um, you know, I, I'm scared of heights and all sorts of weird things like that. So I'm not a, um, but then it's some other bits of risk. I, I like. I don't mind, you know, writing about myself mm-hmm. and exposing myself. Uh, not exposing, but that sounds all <laughs> exposing my uh, feelings. Um, yeah, I'm not. Ex- I've never exposed myself. <laughs> I it absolutely clear. Um, so I suppose that bit I don't mind. I don't mind standing up. At, you know, I think at, at, at work, I um, I'm le- I'm only now really learning to deal with risk. Uh, long t- long way in. Um, 
professionally, as mm-hmm. in, you know, this risk of harming a patient or missing something or uh, all that thing about uncertainty, um, which which a lot of my colleagues are much are much better at mm-hmm. and much better at sort of compartmentalizing or whatever. Um, but on the other hand, I was quite happy to stand up and make a fool of myself. So I, it's it's a strange... It's interesting because you mentioned gambling. Yeah. And to me, that kind of risk, it's, it's a win or lose. It's black or white. It's 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 going to go your way or it isn't. Yeah. And you can add probability into that, but let's not. Um, <laughs> but then you're talking about a sort of a multi-layered risk yeah. of, which, which I think is probably more what you deal with on the day-to-day. Well, yes. I mean, so I think in medicine, there's this real um, battle between uh, doing the best for your patient and not taking a risk. So, mm. you know, we talk about defensive medicine. So you could go in every day and just say, I'm not going to get sued. That's my number one priority. I'm not going to get sent to prison for, you know, uh, negligence. So, mm. that it, you know, so therefore I'm I'm going to avoid all risks. But of course, if you do that, you don't do the best for the patients because, you know, you'll just avoid doing as much as you can and, uh, and give people give people advice that, you, you know, that it's best for you, not for them. So that that's difficult. And, and I think, you know, in America, it's gone really that way in that they're so worried about being sued. Um, well, that and the fact they get paid for everything they do. So they have an odd <laughs> incentive. Whereas in the UK, you've got that constant sort of uh, accountability versus um, sort of professionalism or whatever it is. And, and, it's a difficult balance to draw, I think. But I think at the moment, we've probably got it about right. Is that one of the benefits? I hadn't thought about that before, of the NHS. I mean, we take it for granted here that we have this free healthcare. But is is that impartiality, the fact that it isn't paid for, something that actually maintains its integrity? Yeah, we I mean... we should be preserving. I, I, I think so, absolutely. I mean, you can't take away bias. So, you know, surgeons want to operate because it's what they do you know etc um but if you're if you're paid for everything each thing you do then you'll do more things um mm-hmm. you, you know even if i think even if you're a good i mean we're all a we're all a victim of our environment aren't mm-hmm. we um so i think yeah i mean i think i think there's a balance because of course the other side is that we can be less efficient because if we turn up and do the job and go home doesn't matter how much we got done, if you like. So oh, there right. is so there's a there is a balance. But generally I think it's a good thing because I think it it keeps sort of people's priorities in the in the right place. I uh, have been anesthetized once. <laughs> <laughs> you seem very well on it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And it was the scary weirdly, it was the scariest part of having surgery. And but I really appreciated my anesthetist because I said, look, can and I mostly die. Yeah. Like, yeah. I thought if I mumble it, then it might be real. <laughs> and he just looked at me and went, well, yeah, obviously. Like, that's the risk you're taking. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> okay. I didn't realize until very recently, I thought that you were just unconscious. I didn't realize that your breathing was delegated. Yeah. And that yeah. you look after that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, um, so anesthesia is a really odd area of medicine for lots of reasons. But mm-hmm. one is that people don't, uh, don't understand it. I mean, essentially, the anaesthetist is the person who's looking after you through all, through the whole case. Um, 
while the surgeon is doing you know horrible things to you as it, i mean in a, for good reasons but uh so they are you know so first of all they have to make you unconscious obviously but often then stop your breathing because the muscles need to be paralyzed so that mm. surgeons get good access so you have to take over the breathing and that you know in someone like you that is absolutely fine <laughs> um but in that, not only you stop the breathing, you drop the blood pressure. There's mm. several things that happen. And then if it's a big operation, the surgeons, you know, it's quite, it's like having a car crash. You've got to deal with the trauma, the blood loss, whatever mm. it is. But there's, again, there's a dilemma, isn't there? Because you could argue that we, we should tell everyone, you know, you could die. Mm. But of course, that causes, well, about one in 80,000 people die. Mm. So you're causing 79,999 people quite a lot of anxiety mm. for that one. And it, and we sort of hint at it, <laughs> a bit like you. We mumble, um, but it's hard. You know, um, it's like C CPR. Should we, mm. People say we should ask everyone whether they want CPR. But if you're an 18 year old coming in to have your, you know, your wisdom teeth out, and someone says, "Do you want CPR if your heart stops?" Oh yeah. <laughs> you, you think what? Why are you asking me that? Um, what are you doing to me? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. I, yeah, I think it, I think all this kind of stuff is really is more difficult than you know. We mm. of course we shouldn't be paternal and and uh, but but I don't know. Someone said we didn't used to tell people enough, and now we tell them too much. I I don't know if that's true, but there is a and Doctor Google tells them the bits in between yeah. that you wish oh, that they God. didn't in some ways. Yes, Doctor Google is a is an interesting. It strikes me from what you've said that when it comes to risk pertaining to others perhaps that's the risk that you have a harder time with or you're uh, more gentle with. But when it comes to risk pertaining to you and getting up on stage and mm. telling a joke, yeah. when you we that again? are far more cavalier about that kind of risk than you are when someone else is involved. Would you say that's... Yeah, that may be true. I, I, I'm determined not to, no, you know, not to miss out on things mm. that I... So I mean, so the stand-up thing, you know, I, I did, I did a course like a, a good middle-aged man should, and I, uh, and then I, um, and then they'd give you, they teach you, or that you put together five minutes. And the first gig I did was brilliant. I mean, it wasn't brilliant, but for me, it was brilliant. Mm -hmm. And then they just went downhill from there. And but in the middle of it, I realised while I hated going on I was really enjoying the writing and so it kind of led on to and that's when I started trying to write uh, other things so so I, I suppose that bit I think well you know there were some incredibly embarrassing toe curling moments but <laughs> something something's come out of it uh, well, they're all learning experiences or yes they're character data, building yeah it's something yeah yeah. I love that you said that. I always say to people, it's data, it's just data. I like that you said that. Well, I, I'm, it's only because I heard you say it on, oh, on your podcast. You? <laughs> yeah. yeah, no. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I'm yes, so you flattered. See, you're, you're, yeah. I'm flattered. Um, so, yes, yeah, so stand-up comedy and not... You said then about the stand-up comedy that you don't like to miss out on things. Yeah. And I wonder if, is that in part to do with the proximity that you do have to life and death because for me from the outside it would seem really obvious that you have a, a, a unique perspective on that and it would obviously inform how you live your life when you see people expire yeah so uh, definitely now so 
I mean, I don't, but I don't know if that's just because I'm getting older. But mm. when I was in my 20s, starting as a doctor, there was a, there was an element of disconnect. I mean, not, there was an element where the patients felt removed from me because they were generally much older than me. Mm-hmm. Um, and the odd one who wasn't, you know, so unlucky that you thought, this isn't me. Mm. And then as I've got older, they've obviously got closer to my age and and related much more to them. And I think having kids a bit. Um, so I'm much more, I, 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 I sort of relate to them much more closely. Mm. And it does make me, um, and I'm now very aware of time passing. And um, so I get up at a stupid time in the morning, which I'd never have done in the past. My children think I'm, bonkers um because i feel you know i I feel i shouldn't be wasting time although i still very capable of wasting time wasting time is i I think we we all do it but i do think that you reach an age don't you where if you're in bed past eight o'clock on a weekend you just think you're wasting yeah yeah and i've become the thing i swore i'd never be my you know my dad going that's the best part of the day and i'm going oh shit maybe for you but but now you know i went out this morning and it was i mean it was beautiful Mm. misty this moon i was just like and i haven't even bothered to tell my children that because they've just they just can't stand it but i but yeah i mean you become your parents don't you and you do i i love going out walking early in the morning and it's like oh Look at the birds. Yeah. Oh, I can hear the birds. And you'd be like, who am I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm loving this so much. And then when you go to a homeware store and you find yourself <laughs> requiring an entire encyclopedic amount of uh, Tupperware, you realize that <laughs> things have definitely changed. Your priorities have shifted. Yeah, okay, yeah, absolutely. They have. <laughs> um, uh, we talked about uh, in our pre-show questionnaire about recurring excuses that you either make for yourself or for others. And I thought that yours were really interesting. Really? Yeah, oh. because you said that uh, the little thing that I'm doing wrong is okay. You make the excuse that it's okay that I'm doing this because in the grand scheme of things, it's only a little thing. And you referenced global warming yeah. and climate change. Yeah. Um, talk to me about that. Well, so my my big... Um, so so I'm a believer that, you know, you should do even, you know, I, if, even if China is a, this and India is this, you should do your thing because otherwise you may as well give up. Mm-hmm. But I, I still eat meat and I can't, there's no justification for it. And, uh, and I am yet again this week, I've tried to stop and I've, you know, getting, it's gone going a bit better than before. Okay. But I, but I, you know, I do, I mean, I. <laughs> I do that thing that we all do. I make excuses that it's just a, I mean, I, I think eating meat's wrong for every reason, really. I mean, mm. I, but but the one that I suppose pushed me was the climate one. I couldn't argue with that, uh, even internally. But then you, you know, I'm very good at sort of going, oh, well, I've done this and I've done that. So, you know, it's only one thing. And mm. it's just, um, and I suppose you, you know, I'm not claiming I'm going to become a saint, but I, yeah, I can't justify that. So when I get cross with people flying all around the world uh, all the time, you know, then I, it doesn't really make any sense because I've just had a steak or something. So, <laughs> which well, I'm trying to cut right back. Yes. Yeah, no, I, yeah. And and I think it is. So I suppose I'm trying to make the small changes, but I um, but yeah, quite easy to go, well, you know. I'm, I'm 70% of the way there. <laughs> I have to say, though, I... 
in the last few years, I've really felt that there's too much pressure on the individual and the end user. Right. That's not to say that we shouldn't be making the efforts that we know it's good sense to make. But thinking about Brenda taking out her recycling bin in Solihull yeah. and putting it the pressure on her to make sure that her... Or anyone, I'm just... Yeah, no, no, no. That it's when we know that, do we need any more cars made in the world? Is it is it important for Range Rover to have a new model? Is it important for supercars to be made? We we definitely don't need any of those new things. So we've got all this pressure to um, separate your rubbish. Mm-hmm. But equally, we've got these huge industries who are absolutely just making it so much worse. So I sort of fall into that same space of... Will my efforts really make a difference when those huge things are going on, like you said about China? And yeah, no, I, I, and uh, you know, I think the government have got to, um, yeah, completely. I mean, I was quite, I'm quite excited by Keir Starmer's, you know, big new green plan and and Biden, and so that you know, I, I, yeah, of course, that's far mm. more important. But and, and you know, seeing BP today with record profits and backing off their target you know it's, that's really depressing and really mm. difficult but um so yeah i'll go with that then it's the government's <laughs> fault <laughs> brilliant have your steak yeah <laughs> no i'm no. the same i do i try to do my bit i separate my uh my recycling i'm very conscious about uh how i buy things in, mm. the, in the hope that i won't contribute to a problem that we know is massive but equally i think when i think about the time and effort it takes me in the mental real estate and you think about everything else yeah, that's yeah. going on in the world you do sort of think <sighs> yeah no absolutely and i suppose but i suppose my you know my excuses thing is probably you know it's all those little things mm. it's always the little you know and there's quite a lot of them aren't there probably in a day yep. it's quite interesting yeah um, interesting <laughs> now I asked you what obstacle you've had to overcome, and yours is a, is such an unexpected obstacle. Oh, uh, really? Because it's anxiety and hypochondria. Oh, it's not that uncommon, I think, in medics. Really? Well, I, I don't know. I, so I, I, my theory is that medics go one way or the other. They either um, think they're sort of invincible oh. or they're quite... Uh, or they worry quite a lot. That's just a theory. I haven't done any research on <laughs> There's that. There's no data. There's no data. No, but um, but I, when I was a medical student, I mean, literally, apart from OBS and Gynae, every firm I went around, I thought, I've got all this. I've got that and that and that. And uh, a paediatrist, I suppose, didn't have that. Um, and it was, a real, it was a real problem because, you know, you can... I then I went through a period of getting investigated for everything and uh, and I had to then back off and really work it out and a, and a couple of people have really helped me mm. so just some very simple that it's not called the hypochondria anymore apparently oh, I found not? out this week it's called health anxiety oh I see did you know <laughs> I see okay um I was still called I wrote hypochondria but <laughs> I um yeah so I've now got a bit better and I I'm not allowed to I'm not allowed to react to a symptom for a week Okay, well, that's. Do you think it made me think? Do you, someone who likes to eyeball your fears, stand-up comedy is a different kind of fear, right? It's yeah. A, it's a real fear of the unknown of what people are going to, how people are going to react. Do you think the facing up to the health fear, let's call it health fear, not yeah. health anxiety. Yeah, yeah, health anxiety. Do you think you like to eyeball those things and know as much as possible? I, I think I did. So I hated. Um, yeah, if once it was in my head, I had to have the answer. Mm. I had to have it. I, I couldn't deal with the 
it's a chance. And then, and then the other thing, so then a GP friend of mine said, well, good health is just inadequate medical investigation, oh. which is a great line because, because if you keep looking, you'll find something and it, it'll probably be nothing. It'll probably be just a, a normal variant. But once you spotted it, mm. then you'll end up having another test and another test and some of the tests have side effects and then you'll end up, you know, mm. so there is a problem with keeping looking and always wanting an answer. And how often do you have a scan? Do you have it every year, every month? You know, so I had to really think that when he said that, I thought, oh, God, yeah, I've got to stop this um, and learn to live with, the, you know, with the possibility. But it is a balance, isn't it? I mean, mm. I, you know, on the other hand, I don't want to, you know, I'd rather get stage one prostate cancer than stage four prostate. So I haven't really got the answer. <laughs> so and that would be about being vigilant and. Well, yeah. Detection, so yeah. so detecting early. Um, but it, but you've, you know. You've got to draw a line. You've got to find a... I mean, that's why screening is so difficult because mm. you can cause an awful lot of anxiety and then you might not be able to... You know, you've got to show that you can improve outcomes to make it worthwhile. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I don't know what the answer is. How does that show up in your life, for example, you're a parent? So does your health anxiety extend to your children and your family? Um, yeah, they all think I'm an anxious wreck and uh quite rightly um uh, my wife is the opposite interestingly so she's very calm about her health uh the, the bit that i struggle with my kids is um is food is sugar is ultra processed food and oh, sugar i um because they 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 they're now at secondary school they walk to school uh and um they go into a shop on the way home and you know, you can't see an apple. For, you know what I mean? There's no, it's all crisps and, mm. um, and they're fine. And I'm, you know, clearly overreactive about it. But it, but it's not. It doesn't feel healthy. And and that was my big, my. I was thinking about. Oh, you'll come on to it later. But my <laughs> the thing I was wrong about was mm. um, obesity. That's my biggest wrong thing so far that I've discovered in my. Life. Oh. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll come on to that because that is that is really interesting. But I do think the ultra processed food thing, because you also said this, um, how you ate and drank in your young years. I'm exactly the same. I look back and think, oh my goodness, why was I not more vigilant? Why was I not? Why didn't I make good choices? Because I didn't. Yeah. So I, I was thinking about this. On the way here, because I've re- read what I've written, <laughs> and I, um, so I've got mixed feelings about it. Um, so the part of me, so I was an anxious kid, and when I went to university, um, there was a you know university medical student culture you can imagine, and it was amazing to me, and and the, the, I made the best friends I've ever made, I had the best time, um, but it definitely involved alcohol you know alcohol was, mm. a, was a big part of it and it took off quite a lot of my anxiety for a few mm. years and so you know there's a bit of me thinking if it, i don't know I, I don't know what it would have been like without the alcohol but but i but i definitely know that that i enjoyed it and these friends have been friends for life mm. and you know we've all come out okay ish <laughs> um so so but on the other hand I look back at the wasted time and 
you know, the possibly long-term effects. My mum's mm. just died of dementia, you know, has, have I? I'm sorry. I'm, well, well, she wasn't a big drinker, but I, um, but, uh, but it just made, it made me think, you know, yes, you made silly choices. And, and so I, I'm very torn about it. Um, I, I, I do regret I could have calmed down a bit sooner, I think. Yeah, I, w- I was a student in the 90s, and so there was headbanging and drinking. Yeah, <laughs> it's exactly. Like the worst combination. Exactly. And Same. Um, yeah, there's just absolutely, I just look back and think, it was a great time, it was incredible, but at what cost? Because yeah. there, it's those things that you do that you, you just do them out of instinct. You do them because everyone else is doing them. And then you get the information later in life, and you do you do have to ask yourself: Would eighteen year old Emma, would eighteen year old Jib have made the same decisions if we if had the know. information? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's but but we. I mean, I sort of did know. Did I know? No, I. Yeah, I suppose I didn't know because because you think I mean you know trying to tell my kids and um, you sort of think well you you know you, in a way you've got to do it. Haven't you? And my daughter's incredibly. Because I'm the, you know, you mustn't smoke and you mustn't mm. this. Uh, you just regret it. You'll just regret it. And she goes, yeah, I know, Dad, but, you know, you, I, that's what we, that's what you do when you grow up, isn't mm. it? And I think, oh, okay, maybe you're wiser than me about <laughs> <laughs> um, So, uh, yeah, I, 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 I regret it to a certain extent, but I sort of accept it. Mm. Yeah, it's... And they were good. It was good fun, wasn't it? It was good fun, and it's all a learning curve. It's all exactly. a learning process. So, exactly. now I asked you about what your biggest challenge to date was, and you talked about pulling yourself out of a period of anxiety and depression in 2021. A period of anxiety and depression that I think came after the second wave of COVID, and you were very much. Do we say on the front line? Is that the way that you would describe that's, it? Well, that, yeah, that's what it says on the book. So, <laughs> <laughs> let's go with that. Um, Talk to me about that. Yeah, so um, I, I think COVID uh, was um, a, a particular challenge in a couple of ways. One was just the, the scale, mm. um, but the other was the, the newness of it So uh, and the severity of it. So as, a, as an illness, obviously we'd never seen it before, and it didn't behave like anything we'd seen before. So, uh, you know, the for instance, the point at which there was no way back for someone seemed to be different with COVID. Like they, they could be beyond recovery and then recover right. uh, sometimes. Mm. Um, and that was really uh, hard in a, in a pandemic where there was, rather than having 35 ICU patients, we had 120. So the combination was really difficult. Uh, and, then, and then there was this sort of scale of the number of people who died, which mm. was, you know, like a career's worth in, a year or whatever it was. I don't know. But but it was very out of the ordinary, obviously. So I think we were, uh, although at the time, you you know, you just get on with it and there is a bit of sort of adrenaline and there's camaraderie and all those things. You mm. sort of, um, as it finished, a lot of us, I think, sort of weren't quite behaving normally. A, a colleague of mine said, I said, I said, are you feeling all right? He said, well, I sort of am, but I haven't slept beyond half past three in the morning for six oh. months and I went oh that doesn't sound great <laughs> that's key adrenaline wake-up time as well yeah isn't it? I think I guess so uh and and so I, I think it was quite common anyway then I had a case that wasn't good and Linda. Uh, um yeah so Linda was a patient that uh I looked after uh 
2021 and who died and uh it was just the the sort of catalyst to my uh mental health deteriorating and i just that was the sort of final straw that broke the camel for the back i think and i i just sort of I, I went into it. I mean, it was mainly anxiety, um, but you know, I think it's a spectrum, isn't it? And I, but I just couldn't, couldn't. I, my big thing was ruminating. I just got into a sort of ruminating cycle. I couldn't think about anything else, or you know, I'd go for a walk and I'd see people just laughing, and I'd feel incredibly angry with them. And it was a very odd, uh, overwhelming thing. And I was just very lucky because. Um, well, my family were lovely. My kids, I mean, it was really interesting. They they just completely got it. And even though, you know, that they were 12 at the time and you'd have thought they were just obsessed with their own lives, which I think they may, no, they're not, they're <laughs> lovely. But they, they completely got it. My wife was amazing. And um, and then I had a friend who who's a psychiatrist and I just spoke to him and he he just, after 10 minutes, he said, I think, you you know, you need to go and, CGP and uh and then I was well there were two things I was lucky about one was I um I overshare as you're probably getting <laughs> so I talked about it and the other was um that I never didn't want to get better so I never had that you know I didn't know if I was going to get better but I knew that I wanted to mm. uh which I think some people don't have probably. I, the darkness. The darkness. It yeah. just feels like that's all there is. And I mm. um, I didn't have that. Did you feel, and I'm going to project here because I've talked on the podcast before about struggling with mental health at times in my life. And I think the thing when I look back that feels the most sinister about it is that it's a very gradual sort of mist or fog that enters the mind and by the time you notice how bad it is, you're almost um, enveloped in it. But in a way where, it, because it's happened so slowly, you think it's normal. Yeah, so that, so, so, I mean, I think there's an element of that for me in that I was, so I had an, a, an event that, that made it clear, mm -hmm. but probably I'd been ignoring it beforehand. So I think I'd been doing things to to you know like i've been trying to eradicate risk at work when you you can't mm. um and various things and i i got these psychological tools like if if i there was a case presented where it went badly in my mind i'd pick out a moment where i'd have done something different so that it wouldn't have gone badly all these kind of mm. tricks of the mind to to uh kid myself that it couldn't happen to me sort of thing mm. um which I don't think are healthy, you know. I think you've got to accept the work, the world you live in. Um, so, so it was quite a sudden thing, but actually, probably just it was there before, and I just uh, mm. hadn't hadn't uh, addressed it properly. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 
one of my most hated expressions in the entire world is what if because it's almost because <laughs> there's, yeah. it, there's absolutely there's no, no point. point entertaining it yeah and the worst what if I've ever had is when I crashed my car when I was at university. Right. I was listening to Meatloaf and I was in third <laughs> gear, which I had no business being in a car park. And I went straight into the back, going around a corner into one of my lecturer's cars. Oh. Cars. Amazing. It was wow. just like catastrophic. That's, that's the fool. And it all happened so quickly. And it was I was obviously very embarrassed. But the next day, not the night of, the next day as I was falling asleep, my brain showed me the accident again, which obviously had happened very quickly and I hadn't remembered it in the in the 24 oh, wow. hours afterwards particularly. But as I was falling asleep, it showed me the accident, but it showed me somebody between the two cars. Oh, yeah. And that's horrible. Yeah. When I was reading, when I was reading the book and when I was thinking about what you do, I wondered if the your mind does that to you, given the state. You operate within such high stakes and there must be those scenarios where it replays and beyond your control, it will replay in a way that is unkind to you. Well, I, I definitely have the, I mean, I, so you're talking about sort of about moral luck on you where you do one thing and, mm. and, you know, if you do something like the drunk driver who just hits the garage or hits a kid mm. and that, you know, is one of them worse than the other. And, uh, and i definitely have a yeah. big thing about that. You know, the outcome it's not just what you do, it's it's how mm. lucky you are. Mm. Um and I, I think in medicine, you know, we you have near misses, um and and those kind of haunt you in a in a strange way because you sort of they mm. they sort of do the equivalent of that um of that, you know, there being someone in the way. I I've had the f playing back things and why didn't I do that or mm. what if that and I agree with you, it, it, but it's very hard to, because part of you is thinking then, you know, I should be better at this and someone else might have done that. And uh, and that's really difficult, isn't it? Because at some point you, you may be right and you, mm. you should you should stop. And, and judging that is, um, I think, it's difficult. So, uh, so I suppose I came out of it and thought, you know, I've got to, got to believe that I'm okay at this and uh and just keep an eye on it <laughs> has has it ever crossed your mind to leave to not do Medicine. the job anymore yeah yeah it did then um it it did for a couple of one uh well I did think what else would I do and then it then I thought no I better go back to medicine um <laughs> Uh, Comedy's going to be fine. Comedy <laughs> seems to be struggling on. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I, I've thought about modifying quite often. I think medics. Um, I mean, you know, people talk about the three careers now, don't they? And uh, you know, you, we should all have three careers. Apparently, Do you oh, know that? I didn't know this. Yeah, um, <laughs> so that we we can. It's in um, Cavan. I think it's in. Cavendish's book called Extra Time. It's a great book. Um, Makes notes. <laughs> um, uh, about, you know, working till you're 70 or 75, mm. but in a good way. And, and medics, I think, quite often uh, slightly change their careers as they hit my age uh, to, to do less sharp end stuff. Uh, unfortunately, I haven't got a plan for that, but... Um, Maybe one day. <laughs> Maybe one day. Yeah. But do you think as well, because you have had that episode with your mental health mm. and you have come through it, 
Um, and just before we get into the rest of that question, like how long did it take you? Or did you think that realizing that there was an issue was was the biggest step in the recovery in itself? Uh, no, and, well, funnily enough, I mean, I, I can see that. Would, but for me, no, because it was the issue was obvious. Mm. Um, you know, I knew, well, I knew within a few days that I wasn't reacting normally. Right. Um, so, but maybe over, you know, maybe it brought everything else into into focus, as it were, the, the previous, you know, years. But um, what was the question? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's about how long, how long, oh, how long it did it take you? to get better? Yeah. Um, it, it wasn't, it, it, it wasn't too bad. I sort of, it was great graded. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had a couple of moments that were really, uh, were big steps, I think. I mean, you know, trouble is it's very hard to know which bits helped, isn't it? But the swimming thing, mm-hmm. terrible cliche, but I remember, uh, um, so I've got a friend who's an actor who's a, who had terrible stage fright, um, which I can't believe he's a brilliant actor and he never seems to look at anything but relaxed. But anyway, he, he swims every day. And he um, he just said, oh, try it. So I went along with my wife. And I remember the shock of the water emptying my brain for the first time. It was amazing. And wow. I'm a terrible swimmer. And I think the cold and trying to stay alive. <laughs> it was, And it was totally – and, I, and I, I stayed in for ages. I mean, it was May. It wasn't mm. January. Um, and – and that was really helpful. And the other thing I had was I did take um, antidepressants, mm. which was an—I mean, it was a really interesting experience um, because uh, they said um, they said uh, oh they can make you more anxious for a bit, but you know just try and uh, stick with it. White knuckle it. <laughs> and yeah, exactly. And I—I I mean, blimey, they—they they definitely made well. They definitely made me all right, more anxious for a bit. Oh wow! Um, but then they gave me this space mm. this objectivity uh which which was which i think well i think they did i mean that's mm. was my ex- that was my experience um so yeah that's that was i don't know that's what worked for me it's or seemed inter- to yeah. it's interesting with the cold water swimming mm. you said you could feel your brain empty if you like yeah do you think and it sounds like the you talked about the detachment if you like with the ssris i'm guessing mm. um do you think that's part of it? It's just sort of being a, being able to have the relief of not thinking for a minute. Yeah, I mean, I needed to get away from my thoughts. Mm. I had, you know, whatever they call intrusive thoughts, mm-hmm. or I just couldn't escape uh, this round and round and round. And I'd get to the end of it, and or I'd have a chat with someone who talked me down, and I'd. Um, so that was what was interesting. So people could talk me down and and logically I'd go with them and I'd feel better and safe and then I'd walk out of the room and 20 minutes later I'd be back to square one. Yeah. Oh, uh, that's the worst, isn't uh, it? You think, oh, and uh, yeah, and I remember seeing, I saw the, uh, the psychologist at work and in her room I felt like a fraud because I felt safe and thought, oh no, I'm, I think I'm getting better and I'd walk out and then before I got to the tube, you know, I was, it was really weird. Recovery isn't linear. That's no, the greatest no, no. Exactly. sort of um, comfort I've been able to give myself. If ever I have a bad day, I'm like, this is just part of the recovery. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you, this today's bad day is better than the bad day two years ago that you would have had. So try. No, no. <laughs> some perspective. Yeah, yeah. Talk to me about um, the opportunity that you took in terms of writing, because I wondered if you've talked about stand-up comedy. <laughs> 
You were a consultant on Holby City for a period. You've written two books. Was there a part of you that wanted your writing to not be about your job, do you think? Yeah, I, that's really interesting. That That's definitely... So when I did stand-up, my illustrious stand-up career, um, it wasn't about medicine. Um, and I now think maybe it should have been. But uh, <laughs> at the time, I, I just couldn't... I just couldn't think of a new angle on medicine that, mm. that wasn't being done elsewhere. And then I um, then I wrote a, a novel with a friend that was almost as bad as the stand-up. Um, but I, Where can I read it? You can't, in my computer only. Um, but, uh, but I wrote that from a, I mean, I wrote that as, as a, the protagonist was a hospital manager. So it was a mm, hospital, but it wasn't, again, it wasn't mm. about doctors um and then i wrote and, but then i've gradually getting closer then i wrote a play which was had a doctorism and then i yeah mm. and this was a um th- th- this was an opportunity that yeah i couldn't i was over the moon to get really uh, were you because you wrote live support which was really was about covid19 yeah, yeah and then this is um how would you say this one is different obviously covid19 features yeah, so, I, well, so the COVID-19 was very, I mean, COVID-19, the life support was very, um, uh, really was just a three-month memoir. Mm. Um, and, and, and it, the, you know, that it was, that three months was so sort of intense. It was mm. a sort of its own uh, story in a way. Um, and it had little bits going into, you know, some of the ethical things and some of the my sort of anxieties or conundrums or whatever but uh with this one i wanted to go much you know broader mm. uh and and a bit deeper into into the things that really bother me mm. or or confuse me or um worry me and also um to give a to give a, a more general view of what it's like in intensive care you know try and get a feel of because covid you know it wasn't really like it was so abnormal you know, we're all in spacesuits all the time. And so this was just to try and get a sort of sense. Because I think a lot of people um, don't really, unless you've had a relative in intensive care, it's mm. a bit of a unknown area of medicine. Um, and people don't want to look at it. No, no. But they. I hope they'll want to read about it. <laughs> they'll, they will want to read about it. <laughs> Speaking about COVID-19, I think I would kick myself if I didn't ask you. Because even yesterday on my social media, I have not spoken about um, COVID-19 particularly because I've got no business. Mm. But uh, the amount of times I'm seeing people talk about COVID was a scam. Oh, yeah. It's a way to control us. Yeah. It was an experiment. Uh, I grew up, similar to you, in that the biggest conspiracy theory I was fascinated by was JFK. Mm. And now we seem to have turned everything into a conspiracy theory. You were on the front line. So from your perspective, COVID-19 was definitely real. Oh, yeah. <laughs> God. It's far, yeah. It's in, yeah. I mean, it was, um, and it wasn't just real. It was the worst thing we've ever seen by miles. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it was awful. Uh, the numbers, but just the, the how bad a disease it was. And I think that's what I find difficult about all the conspiracies, um, uh, uh, you know, it's, it was just flu. People were dying 
older than the average, you know, mm. it wasn't, I mean, it shortened people's lives by on average 10 years, the people who died. So, mm. it, you know, yes, a lot of people died in their eighties, but a lot of people younger died and it took 10 years life expectancy off those people. So it's, that's a, you can't ignore that. Mm. Um, and then the vaccines, I mean, I, I know I, I find the vaccine harmed word really difficult. You mm. know, vaccines have side effects. Antibiotics have side effects. Everything has side effects. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, if you, you know, I've seen people with life-threatening vaccine side effects in our hospital, but but no one's making up the figures about this. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're the and and this idea that mRNA vaccines are an experiment. You know, people have been working on mRNA for years and years. Yes, it's a new vaccine, but it's not. It's not a you know, something someone's just knocked together in the back chair. So I, so I find it difficult. I, I mean, I, you know, I get that we should be, you know, I'm quite skeptical about the government and mm -hmm. I, and, but I, but I don't, I think this is targeted at the wrong people. I, and I get people are terrified of big pharma and all this kind of stuff, but, but I think, you know, vaccines are vital and, uh, and they, this, the vaccine story is, is, it's hugely important in the COVID story, and mm. that's my view. I mean, I, and and I think the arguments that lockdowns will go on and on, um, but I but I find it difficult when people say, "Well, now it's clear, you know, lockdown was a disaster and ruined." Mm. I mean, I know that it had side effects, and kids had mental, lots of people had mental health problems, but I think to just write it off as a stupid idea is, you know, when when those numbers were coming through the door, were going like this. But that's I'm doing an upside. <laughs> uh, you know, we were desperate for people to to stop interacting mm. because we didn't. We, you know, we didn't have anywhere to put anyone. It uh, might have seemed extreme, but you're saying that when um, I mean, I'm such a I'm so risk averse that if you mm. tell me to stay at home, I'm staying at home. And if I've got an hour out of the house, I'm going to be 59 minutes and 59 seconds. I'm such a yeah, yeah, no, world. no, me too. Rule, I like that. <laughs> me too. So, but what you're saying is that when lockdowns were lifted or when there were, um, people were coming in, it was like, because they've, they have not been obeying the lockdown rules or because they've been interacting. So you could see, you could actually see more than anyone that as, as awful as a lockdown is, and we know that there are going to be, uh, mental health impacts and huge impacts on people. But in terms of lowering the number of people coming into hospitals, it was effective. Yeah, I mean that's that was our experience. I mean we saw uh and and I know that people you know I I I'm new to social media but I'm now I see all the um all the stuff and they say oh this it had started slowing down before the lockdown all this mm. but you know our experience was that um the lockdown slowed it down and um you know if it had gone on going up it would have been it would have been much worse. Did you review or were you in some way, um, did you have something to do with Nightingale Hospital? I did go to the Nightingale, yeah. And that, that was another thing. didn't actually get used in the way that... It got used thought. a little bit. Uh, I think 50 patients went there. But they were, they were when I went there, they were building 4,000 beds and it was terrifying. Um, and that was a great argument for, for lockdown. Would you mind explaining what the Nightingale Hospital was? Um, yes, yeah, so the Nightingale was uh, a an idea... Um, put in place uh, as the first pandemic started of the of, of COVID, which was to be an overflow hospital of intensive care 
because the numbers projected to far outstrip the number of beds we had. So they plan to build 4,000 ICU beds in the Excel Centre and then in other places around the country um, and use them as sort of field intensive cares, if you like. Wow. Because that, I mean, that was another classic thing with the with the pandemic. So the disease, we thought it would just be a lung disease, and you just put people on ventilators and wait for it to get better and take them off. But it wasn't. It was a multi system disease, mm. and it was you you know you couldn't just put them on a basic ventilator. They had to be on high tech ventilators and being turned onto their front and all this sort of stuff, mm. which which we didn't know when it hit, but found out pretty quickly. And that's why. Um, we backed everyone backed off the nightingale because you needed people to be as many people as possible to be in proper hospitals. But of course, if we if the numbers had carried on going up, there wouldn't have been anywhere in hospitals. There wouldn't you know there wouldn't have been enough ventilators. There wouldn't have been enough oxygen. It would have been horrendous. That would that I think Nightingale Hospital was when it got a bit sort of doomsday. It was like God, this is like something out of a film. Yeah. And the only time we've ever seen any um, anything like COVID is in films before COVID yeah. happened it was so you actually being there in the hospital as all these cases are coming in I don't know how that must have been to process because did you think oh this is it this is <laughs> this is it this is just the end well so there was different funny state I mean not funny there were different stages so the 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 when we knew it was coming when it was in Italy and we had that mm. we had about a week or two and we were trying to prepare and that was re- that was, uh, in some ways, f- more frightening because you thought, I don't know what's coming, and I don't. Am I going to get it? Am mm. I going to all this stuff? And then I remember when going into the f- going in the first time to a bay full of it and seeing people getting on with looking after patients. That was a kind of a relief. You thought, oh no, it's still being a doctor, and it's you know. It's- mm. But then, and then I had another one where a young person died of it, like in their twenties, and that, and that, and then. So it was really, it was a kind of roller coaster. Um, but, but, and this is another funny thing is that you, when it started, I'd in my mind thought it was going to be a three month thing and it'd be done, and so I could, I was that's how I was dealing with it. Because you thought there'd be a vaccine or a cure? Well, no, because I just didn't accept that there would be a second spike. And right. It, you know, I just sort of <laughs> right. thought, you know, I had my birthday in the in the distance in July. I thought by then we'll be back to normal. <laughs> of course it was, you know. But in a way it was quite good because it made it manageable mm. at the time. Mm. Um, but I don't know, you know, I, we had something to do. We had a job. We, you know, in a way, I think, I mean, I don't really know what being in lockdown is. I mean, I, you know, I was going to work every day, yeah. so I didn't have that thing of, I mean, I, I would not be good sitting at home teaching the children every day. <laughs> it would have been awful. I, I was one of the people who really enjoyed it. Did you? And Did I you? feel bad about that, yeah. Why? You shouldn't feel bad about that. No, but I know that it was really damaging. For, and I guess, oh, I see. I guess in a way, 2022 is really difficult because I found it quite hard to come out of that way right. of living. Oh, wow. I, I actually find the overstimulation sometimes a little bit too much. So oh, I I actually was like, okay, and it's a bit like, what if? Like, there was no point. I thought, well, this is it. The way that you show the people in your life that you love them is to stay away from them. I made peace with that very, very early on and just kind of got on with it. And I wasn't, I wasn't angry about being locked down. I think a lot of people I know were very angry for a long time. Right. And was, you could carry on working. Yes, Right. Mm. That's that's amazing. Yeah. 
But it, and did you what, what about when he came out then? Was that you didn't like going? It took me a really long time. Wow. It took me a really long time, and I was very cautious. I was. I remember um, even just getting the train into London and being very, very jumpy. And obviously, as someone who emerged at a much slower rate from a lot of people, mm. uh, I was around the majority of people who were very comfortable. There were no longer social distancing. So everything would just, I would just be, I'd yeah, be very, very yeah, jumpy. Yeah. And so every excursion would be, and I was very nervous. And if people spoke to me, I would be leaning yeah, back. Yeah, and yeah. so I wasn't, it wasn't a great social participant for a while because I just still had anxiety of. <gasps> and had, did you have it? Mm-mm. You never had it? Because I think that's a big thing. Because right. I didn't have it till last summer. Okay. And up until I did, up until I had it, I was still a backing off mm. person. And then once I had it, I completely changed. And I, I've got one colleague who still hasn't had it, and he's still. I think it, it sort of sits with you. This thing, oh, oh. I, oh I really don't want to get it now because I've got away with it. This, you know. Uh, so I think uh, you need to have it. And you know. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> no, that's not good medicine, is it? That's not what I mean. But I, but it was a real change to my because I, yeah, I didn't want to go on the tube. I didn't want to. Mm. Um, and I, I think, I think part of it is getting used to, it and part of it is all those people have already had it. Yeah, so. that's true. Um, I want to, you alluded to your, tell me about a time when you were wrong answer. So I want to, oh, cut, yeah. I want to fast forward to that because our time is quickly drawing to an oh, end. Oh, sorry. No, no, please do not apologize. Um, I asked you to talk to me about a time when you were wrong. I think this is such a telling question. And when guests answer, I'm always, um, it's always very revealing. <laughs> so I actually am not sure that your answer that you told me before the show is the same as the one that you... Yeah. Uh, mentioned earlier. Yes. No, it's not because I only thought of that one because because I, before I was thinking, you know, I'm mainly my I'm wrong when I'm too quick to judge or I'm impatient and and that's my I'm terrible at that and uh, you know upset someone because I'm just sort of let it all show. I'm very bad at hold, hiding you my emotions. You seem like the least impatient person. I'm terrible. Are Ask you snappy? Uh, I just get frustrated and uh, it's awful and I hate it. But I, um, yeah, it's really, it's not good. Is that an anxiety response? I think so. Yeah, I think it's... I'm losing control. It, this isn't happening on my timeline. It, and, and and we're wasting time, mm. um, I think. And I, and I... I'm determined. I, that's my big mission. But the thing I'm... The, the issue... <laughs> no, hang on. I'm, You're determined oh, to what? Well, I'm determined to get better at it because mm-hmm. what happened is this is so um it is then i regret my impatience like 12 seconds later okay and have spend the next hour apologizing which is even worse <laughs> <laughs> i happened to work last week i felt and i spent the whole day the poor woman i'd been impatient with which is fine just leave me alone <laughs> oh. i mean she was lovely but but it was um so yeah that's my that. is it never about the people it's about what it's bubbling up in you yeah yeah so my my son um you won't listen silly. Uh, <laughs> he um he gets he gets to supper and he sits down and then he just doesn't do anything he'll start like you know he'll start singing or get his guitar out and like everyone else has finished and he's still sitting there he hasn't even started eating his meal and i mm. just like 
Right. So that is that. Kind of, I mean, it's stupid. You know, it doesn't make no, any difference. I think there's a whole uh, a whole podcast on, <laughs> on this. Um, when I'm with my parents, this has always been the case. My mum will put the food on the table. And then my dad will get up and get a drink. Yeah. And it's like he's been in the kitchen for 15, 20 minutes and the food is put in front of him and then he gets up and we're like, oh my goodness. I know it drives my mum mad. Because the other thing is when I, whenever I sit down to eat, I'm starving. Mm. And I just like, you know, I don't say anything for about 20 minutes until I've... And he just doesn't <laughs> seem... And he's really thin and so I, maybe there's some other thing in my head. I mean, he's fine, but, mm. but I just not that interested. And so then I spend, so then he eats a bit of it and goes, oh, I think I've had enough. And I then spend the next 20 minutes saying, you've got to eat. Mm. You know, it's all that stuff. My brother and I, I don't know what your daughter's like, but if you put a plate in front of me, a plate of food in front of me, it's like you've given me treasure. I'm like, oh. <laughs> and I just explore. My brother is indifferent. Yeah. I will uh, enjoy the texture of food and the color of it. And my brother just eats it and there is ab it's just a function yeah. whereas for me it's an experience so maybe he's more of a functional eater well, it, well we had <laughs> I, there was a brilliant guy um who i worked with they did this um expedition to everest a sort of science expedition and they ate gels oh yeah and he, and he came back and went oh i just have gels and he just filled his cupboard with and I was thinking, oh my God. It's just like, well, that works. I don't know. I think it's extraordinary, oh. isn't it? Just didn't bother. So like, well, don't have to think about cooking. I'll just eat packets of gels off the Should be an astronaut, shouldn't <laughs> yeah, exactly, it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um I'm not, yeah. what were yeah, you going on. to say sorry about? Oh, no, so no, the um so the, the the big medical thing that I had a revelation on was obesity. Uh because although I knew that it wasn't as that straightforward. There was always a part of the in me in the back of my mind going, "You just need to eat less and run around more." Mm -hmm. And then um, and I'm going to do a plug for it. then one. I read a book called "Why We Eat Too Much" by one of my colleagues. Is that uh, by Andrew Jenkinson? Okay, it's a really good book. I thought it was really good. Right, um, he's a he's a surgeon. He's a bariatric surgeon. And oh wow! Yeah, bariatric surgery is a gastric is, bypass. Is gastric bypass exactly? And he got you know he did the job job and and then he started to become more and more interested in in these people coming in and what was going on and what how they got to the situation they were in and so he went and he goes into all the science and I, and I just thought oh, uh I've got to completely rethink this um, and 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 of course that's why I think this sort of clear response to the obesity crisis and things of you know, it's got to be really carefully and mm. cleverly done. And it's sort of that thing about experts. You need people who really understand the science to make the, to influence the policy, I think. Is there an obesity crisis? And well, what not, does that mean? And well, I mean, I think, um, so there's a diabetes crisis, isn't there? Um, and there's a sort of, uh, I mean, I don't know the figures on obesity, but I know that there's a huge amount of, of morbidity from diabetes mm -hmm. and from my sort of understanding of it they, there's a group of people that won't be affected by the western diets mm -hmm. and are just lucky and and you know if you look at the american weight the, the mean hasn't moved that much but the obese tail has gone way out since the 1970s so there's this mm. vulnerable group mm -hmm. um and those people in that group are, are, are beyond you know they can't change it themselves they'll never be well they, he says you'll never beat the hormones because the hormones are so dysregulated by the time that you're obese you can't you don't ever feel full uh because all the 
the mm-hmm. feedback loops have have been desensitized so they're constantly starving they're full of you know all the things that mm. you probably know and i don't i'm just really stupid someone said you should never eat anything that doesn't go off oh i was interested in that because um it's something i've talked about a lot and up until a few years ago uh i was obese and that i would do the same dance with the same 30 to 40 pounds. Oh, you pounds. know far more about obesity. I'm ashamed well, now that I asked about it. From obesity. lived experience, not from not from any medical uh, expertise. I didn't want to be like that anymore. But like with my mental health, I didn't want to feel like that anymore. Yeah. And I wanted to stop doing this dance with the same 30 to 40 pounds because it was just tiring. I didn't like how I felt when I was heavier. And I had to address that fried feedback loops, ghrelin, leptin, all of those things. It's amazing, isn't it? All of those things aside, the only thing I had control over was my choices. And the only thing I could really control was my behavior around food. And I had to really interrogate that. How did you do it? It's my, it was my behavior. As much as I understand that there are hormonal issues going on and as much as I know that some people have it worse off than others, just your base metabolic rate. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the other thing. I was amazed. Like it can be a third difference. Yes. So it's like being born rich or being born poor. Yeah, and totally. you can kind of... And what I, what I find really confusing at the moment, confusing and unhelpful, is this new narrative, the sort of anti-diet culture, which is... which almost spreads the message that you don't have agency to make change he talks about this thing about the the sort of and this is a, probably the wrong word but the fad diets or the the, yes. the yeah um what happens is you go down and that's a lot because you lose water from your liver yep. and all those things but then your body looks on you as starving and so sets your set weight higher so mm. actually that's why people put on because they then bounce back to higher and it's a sort of escalating i knew for example okay so just being very very honest i've said yeah. this before on the show sorry if it's but makes you feel uncomfortable but i said i didn't like being bigger right does that make me fat phobic makes me fat phobic towards me for sure i didn't like myself in a bigger body but i always clung on to this idea that i could make change but i was doing every single fad diet there was expecting it to, expecting a short term to have a long term to have a long term effect a diet will only last as long as you're doing it so when you say diets don't work or diets don't work anymore every diet i've done and there were lots okay. worked when i was following the rules the second i stopped following the rules the diet stopped working but the diet wasn't at fault it was my adherence um, oh, this is fascinating did you <laughs> and, and but now do you not think about it all the time um, no, not in the same your... way. I'm very aware that I'm in recovery. Okay. I've never been diagnosed, but I know that I have a problem and I know that... Like a pathological relationship. Yes. So yeah. it is something that... I oh, am... So you have to manage that all the time, you mean? I'm aware of it. And mm. I, as with mental health, there'll be times when I think, I've backpedaled a bit this week. Right. But now what I've done by doing the work and investigating and thinking about my behavior around food, I know what my uh my sort of true north is i come back to the safe space and just like if i know that if i do this which isn't a diet it's just what choice do i want to make today right right what do i want and sometimes the choice might outwardly look not like a great one but it's the right one for me so i think it's just getting to know yourself that's fascinating (laughs) i i am i mean i suppose the thing that uh the thing that I'm ashamed of, as when I say I'm wrong, is um, 
is that although I'd never admit to it, I probably on some, I'm now I'm admitting to it, mm-hmm. um, you know, well, there's a funny thing about, about being an anesthetist is that um, obese people yeah. are difficult. Uh, they're more difficult to anesthetize and they're more stressful. And uh, funnily enough, along with tiny children. Um, so the, And so there's a little, so of course that's in your mind and therefore there's a little bit of you as much as you fight it sort of judging. Mm. Um, and that's why reading this book was really, uh, was really good for me because it made me, it just got rid of that. It just completely eradicated. I thought I, all it made me think was, you know, compassion or whatever, or, mm. you know, I don't mean that patronizingly, but yeah. you know, understanding. Or, uh, so that was a, which wasn't great at the age of 40, whatever I was at the time, but it was really good to get rid of some prejudices. I think it's important to have these conversations as well because we're all learning and it's not, it is new, every conversation isn't as nuanced. Yeah, yeah. And how I feel today, I might read the book that you've recommended and fundamentally my opinions will change. And that's, I'm allowed to learn more and change my opinion, as are you. That's exactly well, my, you my opinion's changing already. <laughs> yeah, so I think um, that that's the whole point of these discussions. Yeah. They, they move the conversation forward, hopefully in a positive and helpful way. Yeah, oh, well, yes, and thanks for being generous about it. I, uh, I feel slightly like, you know, ill-informed person. But anyway, thank you. Uh, you are very welcome. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Um, thank you so much for joining me. No, thank you for having me. It's been great. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then make sure you're subscribed so you never miss a show. And why not tell a friend about the podcast? If you want to watch what happens behind the scenes, then head over to my Instagram where I'm at Emma Guns. And if you want to get in touch with me and share any risks, obstacles, challenges, or curveballs that you've faced and overcome, then tell me on thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. And it may feature in one of the midweek shows. Thank you so much for tuning in. I will see you on the next one. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.